Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On today's show, our guest is Professor Joan Meyer, who teaches clinical law at the George Washington University Law School and has taught three different domestic violence clinics at the law school, involving direct representation of survivors in civil court, emergency responses in the medical setting, and student field work in a wide range of community DV organizations. Fifteen years ago, Professor Meyer also founded DV Leap, the Domestic Violence Legal Empowerment and Appeals Project based out of Washington, D.C. Professor Meyer is also a member of the Advisory Council and the Global Women's Institute. So welcome, Professor Meyer. Thank you. Nice to be here. So just in terms of your bio, was there anything else that you're doing oh. <laughs> that is missing from it? I'm curious. Well, I should say that I'm the legal director now of DV Leap, as well as having founded it. You must be a very busy woman. So first, let me just thank you for being a guest in our show. It's my pleasure. Um, so to get started, it's always interesting to learn about how each of our guests came to the field of working against gender-based violence. Mm. I'm curious, was there a personal journey story behind this? It's it's a little ambiguous, um, to be frank. Um, I was always in college, became fairly feminist and became much more feminist in law school. And I went to a very conservative law school. Um, and I got very interested in domestic violence um, uh, philosophically and ideologically and politically and legally. And it wasn't until much later that I started to surmise that there were dynamics in my family that may have played a role in my interest. Um, but it, it's nothing as direct as one might think. I see. And tell me about DV Leap. What need does it serve and how does it do it? So it stands for Domestic Violence Legal Empowerment and Appeals Project. And I launched it 15 years ago um, because I realized after an appeal happened in, in my area and in, in the District of Columbia, and no one was really involved in it, no one in the DV community was really involved in it, um, I realized that there was a complete lack, it seemed, of of legal advocacy at the appellate level. There was a lot of federal funding for direct representation at trial, but nobody was paying attention to appellate work. And of course, at, on appeal is where the law gets made. Uh, precedents get set and it guides future judges. And so it's, 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 more, it's a more powerful level of advocacy. So I wanted to fill that gap. And it's also kind of more fun for people like me to do appellate work because it's more writing and research and analysis and less trial work. And that was that suited me better. So I launched DV Leap to fill that vacuum. Um, and uh, the goal was really to provide advocacy across the board in any case involving or affecting uh, survivors of family abuse. But we became very, very inundated with uh, pleas for help in custody-related litigation. So we do we do more than that, but we do a lot of that. And let me just get this straight. You started this when you were a professor. That's right. I actually um, had just had my daughter, and I took a two-year leave of absence from teaching. I was teaching in a litigation clinic, and that meant dealing with litigation deadlines and the stress of litigation. And these cases are very quick, civil protection order cases. So it's very, very intense. And once I had my baby, I didn't want to keep doing that. And I took a couple of years off with my child to try to figure out what to do next. And what I came to was that I really want, wanted to launch this appellate thing. And in order to do that, I had to reconfigure my teaching role. So I, I became half teaching and half nonprofit lawyer when I went back. So given that domestic violence is in your organization's name, and your bio references also the misuse or mislabeling of categories uh, when responding to domestic violence. Can you talk a little bit about that? What do you mean by the misuse or mislabeling? Oh, so that's that's a reference to what we see very often in family court cases which involve child custody. Um, there's a lot of reliance on social science and so-called experts and evaluators who use social science. And a lot of the theories that they use and the labels that they use are really not scientifically credible and valid, but they're used basically to deny true abuse. I see. And just to be clear, how does your organization define abuse in terms of the realm of behaviors and spectrum of what falls in legal versus 
inappropriate or wrong? Yeah. Well, we we kind of operate on two levels because we're litigating in court. We, of course, are bound by legal definitions. And typically that can vary a little bit from state to state, but typically it's criminal acts between the family members, you know, violence, assault. Um, but there can be many other things like parental kidnapping or threats, uh, threats of someone's life, that kind of thing. Those are the obvious cases of domestic violence. We also address child abuse a lot and really much more than the average domestic violence group does. That's become a huge focus of our work. Um, But of course, in the field at large, domestic violence is understood to be much broader than criminal behavior. It includes coercive control and many, many ways that abusers will manipulate and uh, control and undermine women, typically, um, and children in public as well as in private. So, you know, we certainly understand that and we write a lot of briefs often explaining that to courts, that domestic violence goes beyond what the law prohibits and it's many psychosocial types of behaviors as well. And we often use that to try to explain to courts to put in context the things that were raised in court and why they fit the pattern. Hmm. So it seems like the problem you are addressing is that despite legislative and policy reforms designed to protect victims, survivors, and their children, are still denied legal protections in court and through the legal process. So can we just break that statement down a little bit? What actually are the existing laws and policy reforms that are in existence to protect victims and children? And how is your organization meeting those gaps? So that's a more complicated question than you may know, because most laws that address domestic violence or abuse in the family are state laws, and every state has its own set of laws. So I can't tell you, I can't list five laws and tell you that's it. It's state by state. But but generally speaking, states have protection order statutes, which allow a victim of family violence, mostly adult, but some teen victims can go to court and get protection orders. They have custody statutes, most of which reference abuse in the family as relevant to child custody. They have criminal statutes, which obviously make assault and other violent acts and other crimes criminal, even when they're in the family. Um, And then there's statutes about child abduction. There's international treaties about child abduction, and we handle some of those cases. Um, So there's a wide array of laws. Um, The gaps that we see are less in the law itself and more in the implementation in court. So we see a lot of courts that are reluctant to protect a child in a custody setting and uh, are reluctant to believe abuse claims, especially child abuse claims, in custody cases. And so children are not being protected and are being sent to live or spend time with dangerous parents, typically fathers. Um, We see sometimes in the protection order setting, courts that are willing to give abusers protection orders because they're willing to believe in abusers' claims about abuse when in fact it was the victim using self-defense and she didn't do anything aggressive or frightening, whereas the abuser was was aggressing on her, but the court gets it reversed and gets it wrong, or issues an order against the victim based on her self-defense. And we sometimes appeal those cases and try to show why that decision was wrong. Um, we also see courts that are reluctant to enforce orders like that. Uh, and sometimes we appeal those, refusals to issue a contempt order or something like that. Um, And we have these Hague abduction cases that are international uh, where the courts are implementing the treaty and the federal law that implements the treaty, and they're not really understanding the defenses well enough and understanding that someone might flee with a child, uh, and you can call that abduction, but actually it was a flight to safety and they should apply the defenses. So so there's a very vast array of types of laws, and what we find mostly the problems to be is the way those laws apply when there's abuse in the family and the way the courts interpret them. And that's where the problems are. So um, it seems to me that before those cases even get to court, somebody has to decide that a criminal act has taken place. So if a woman, like you were saying, was acting in self-defense and uh, committed an act of quote-unquote violence against her abuser, there's a gap for her to even be arrested and convicted, right? And well, or, that, to, or is that what you're referring to? That's on the criminal side. No, I'm really referring more to the civil protection order side, and that's a civil case. So and all that has to happen in those is, is somebody goes to court and files a petition and says, I need protection. So you're saying essentially that abusers don't have the same criminal standard that they have to be held accountable to to make these false accusations against his victim. Well, what I'm saying is that there's a criminal system and a civil system, mm-hmm. and anyone 
can try to pull in either system, victims or abusers. And abusers are good at manipulating both systems, but they're especially good at manipulating the civil system because it's a lower burden of proof and it's easier to get into court. Given that they're especially good at manipulating that system, why haven't we seen judges responding differently and being attuned to that? Um, because, let's see, that's a tough question. So in order to understand that you're being manipulated by someone and that someone is lying, you have to know a lot about abuse and you have to recognize uh, an abuser. And the fact is, is that abusers perform very well in court. They can be charming. They can be tearful. They can be passionate and emotional. They can be all kinds of things that judges and evaluators don't think are abusers. So, um, you know, they think they can tell an abuser when they see one, but nobody can. So that's one thing is that they think they know they can tell from how someone testifies whether they're an abuser or not. And that's false. And they make the wrong judgment all the time. Second thing is that there's a lot of bias that's maybe unconscious, some of it, um, toward women that basically fits women's stories into stereotypes of the vengeful ex-wife. So if a woman is angry on the stand, they immediately write her off as lying. She's vengeful and she's lying. Um, if she's upset and emotional, well, she's just kind of a hysterical woman who is maybe pathological or mentally ill and we can't trust her. Um, and there's a lot of implicit bias, I think, implicit gender bias, which causes judges and evaluators and neutral, supposedly neutral uh, professionals to, to misjudge women and men in these cases. And that actually brings us to the research that you've been working on. You published a, I guess, a pilot part of the study last year entitled Mapping Gender, Shedding Empirical Light on Family Court's Treatment of Cases Involving Abuse and Alienation. And I understand that just this week, there's some additional data yeah. that you have. Could you actually just walk us through how you found those cases and what the methodology was for doing the research? Sure. So basically, over the years of running and litigating in DV Leap, uh, as well as teaching and you know reading the literature, I've experienced so many court cases where abused women and children were not believed in court. And I've, uh, you know, read a lot of the literature and I've seen that this problem is due in part to the things I just described and in part due to false social science, which I previously referenced. And a leading theory that we think is used wrongly is called parental alienation or parental alienation syndrome. And it's, it's a theory that, um, really has never been scientifically proven <laughs> or even fully scientifically defined, but it has really taken over the family courts because it's a theory that allows a judge or an evaluator to say that the reason a woman is, or a child is claiming abuse is not because it's true, but because the mother has an agenda to push the father out of the family and to turn the child against the father. And the way she's doing that is with these false claims of abuse. And she's doing that either manipulatively and maliciously or because she's pathological and mentally ill. So that theory, which sounds a little extreme, I think when you describe it that way, is actually driving very much of what happens in family courts. And I was very tired of arguing in the judicial setting or in the scholarly setting or in trainings that it was false and that abuse was true most of the time. And we weren't making any headway with the critiques we were leveling at these cases. And I decided we needed to gather some data because, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm just seeing the worst cases and there's a whole lot of cases out there that are going right. Or maybe I'm right and the numbers will actually be more persuasive than my arguing substantively. So what we did was um, rather than what many studies have done, which is take a self-selected group of people who self-define as abused, we wanted to see what was going on in the courts very objectively. And we also wanted to get a national picture. And the only way to do that was electronically. Um, most studies of, of court process have have gone to a particular court and looked through their files because you just have to look through files to get information about cases and you can't really do all the courts in the country. So they do one jurisdiction or one court. I wanted the whole country picture because that was the other problem is that people were ignoring all these regional and localized studies that have been done. Um, and I wanted to say nationwide, this is what the picture is. So we went to the electronic uh, online cases and uh, there's an amazing number of these now that are being published. Most of them are appeals, but many of them are not. Many of them are trial court opinions that are nonetheless published online. And we searched, we spent actually over a month defining our searches in the electronic databases, but we searched for every case we could find within a 10-year period across the country involving abuse or family violence or domestic violence or any number of names, and we threw in every name that we could, 
or alienation theory, parental alienation, PAS, or child alienation, or just the word alienation. And we we actually came up with 15,000 cases in this 10-year period, which was pretty daunting, not what we expected. We then spent about a year triaging through those cases and throwing out the cases that were not parent against parent, some of the same-sex cases, we threw those out because we were looking for a gender analysis and we wanted a clear father versus mother paradigm for, for our cases. And we triaged it down to 4,000 and, and a few hundred cases. And then we had our, our coders who were, who were professionals code every case and we spent a long time deciding on the codes and, and there were like 100 codes that they were doing for every case. So that took another year and a half. So the whole thing took very long time. And then in the last six months or so, we've been trying to number crunch the data. And that's been very complicated because we coded so many things and we have so many different populations in there. But we were very excited to be finally releasing the first wave of the data. That sounds amazing. Where did you get the funding for this research we, um, we had done a, a more informal but still some quasi-scientific survey uh, with the help of an amazing social scientist named Sean Dixon. He's also a, a lawyer. Um, and, we, and, the, and the strength of the results from the pilot study, we applied to the Na- National Institute of Justice, which is a federal agency within the Department of Justice that funds research in these areas and many others. And we were very surprised and pleased that we got the grant, even though I had never, I wasn't a known quantity to the agency, although maybe I was, I don't think I was. I had never done this kind of research before, but I brought together a top-notch team that the agency was familiar with who helped me, you know, write the grant proposal. And so, so this is a federally funded study. Wow, great. So can you tell us what some of the most significant findings were from this study so far? Sure. Um, let me start with um, the rate at which abuse is being believed at all by the courts. And I've broken down most of my findings, our findings, between the two population, the two primary populations in the study, which I call the non-alienation population, which is all the cases that where alienation was not raised, was not argued. And then the alienation population, which is all the cases where alienation was raised. And typically it's raised as a defense to an abuse claim. So the cases I'm talking about for purposes of the findings so far are those paradigm cases where a mother goes to court and claims some kind of abuse, child abuse, adult abuse, both, and the father defends on grounds of saying that's alienation. It's not true. It's just a, a, a campaign of alienation. So looking at those cases, those paradigm cases, which is the majority of, of our data, um, what we found in the non-alienation cases was that courts were only believing 41% of abuse claims, and that cuts across child abuse and domestic violence. But specifically, as we had seen in the pilot as well, they were believing child abuse claims much less often than they believed domestic violence claims. For instance, they believed domestic violence 45% of the time, but child physical abuse only 29% of the time, and child sexual abuse only 25% of the time. And we also categorized mixed kinds of abuse, and those were roughly similar, and it all averaged out at believing abuse only 41% of the time. That, to me alone, seems like a significant finding because what it shows is contrary to the conventional wisdom. The conventional wisdom is, oh, all women have to do is go to court and claim abuse, and they win. And first of all, and we'll get to wins in a minute, but first of all, they go to court and claim abuse. They're not believed more often than not. Mm -hmm. So that's for starters. I mean, isn't that the case in general in our society when it comes to sexual assault as well? There are all these myths that there's a high rate of false reporting when actually it's very low. Right. That's exactly right. And the research that has looked at least at child abuse reporting in court and out of court has found generally that it's credible far more often than not. Um, But courts have the opposite assumption. So even without the alienation defense, you have a low rate of belief. Now, when you move on to the alienation cases, um, there's an even lower rate of belief. Um, Only 37% of domestic violence is believed only 18% of child abuse is believed, and only 2% of child sexual abuse is believed in a case where he claims alienation. And if you break that down still further to the cases where the court believes alienation, adopts that as their finding, of course, the crediting of abuse goes down further. So only 30% of domestic violence gets credited when the court believes the abuse. And child abuse and child sexual abuse are never credited if the court chooses to believe the alienation. Are you saying it's one or the other? So if a parent alleges that there's abuse 
as well as child abuse or child sexual abuse, if the court chooses to believe one allegation, they will reject the other allegation. If, if the accused parent responds with an alienation claim, the, if the court believes the alienation, they will not credit the child abuse. Now, they will sometimes credit the domestic violence, which is interesting. And I think that fits with my understanding of the way judge, judges feel about these cases, which is that I can credit domestic violence even while crediting alienation by the victim because I don't need to worry about giving custody to the abuser when it's only domestic violence. But if it's child abuse, I have to worry about giving credit to the abuser. And if I believe his claim that she's an alienator, I want to be able to give custody to the abuser so I can't credit the child abuse. And that's 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 basically the d- dynamic that we tend to experience in court, and that's definitely what the data is showing. So in a way, um, this points to possibly the gender bias you were talking about earlier, where there's a desire to give more weight to the allegations of an abuser, most of the time men that you're seeing in these cases, and want to sort of make an excuse for their bad behavior that's being alleged in the courtroom, rather than looking at the actual evidence and the facts. Does that sound like a correct interpretation? I think that's a very fair interpretation. Our study is unable to say to the world that when the courts disbelieve abuse, they were wrong because we don't go behind the court's findings. We just take the allegations and the findings and the outcomes and we analyze those. I can tell you, though, based on experience as a litigator uh, representing victims of abuse, that courts are very are often very reluctant to believe child abuse. And they're often also reluctant to believe domestic violence in the custody setting. And they are they tend to bend over backwards to protect fathers from these claims in the custody setting. They're a little less protective of fathers in the civil protection order setting because they're a little less concerned about the outcome hurting the father with a protection order. But when it comes to custody, they are very careful to protect fathers' rights and fathers' access. And so they're they tend to be reluctant to take the abuse claims and sometimes even hostile to the abuse claims. That's my anecdotal experience, and that's shared, as far as I know, from communication with lawyers and advocates and survivors across the country. That's the shared experience of those of us who represent victims of abuse in custody cases. Um, but that's anecdotal. Mm-hmm. So what this data is showing, that our anecdotal experience is pretty much reflected in the data. It doesn't tell you why they're not believing women and they are denying abuse, but it does tell you that they are doing that. So I think it would be a really valuable addition to the research if we can actually follow up longitudinally with these cases somehow and get the results of how these children, you know, what the outcomes in these families were like. That would be worth its weight in gold. And the problem with that research is until the children are uh, adult and free of an abusive parent uh, who's their custodian, they're not free to speak out because they're at risk. And when the mothers speak out because they're seeing the kid during visitation and the kid is reporting ongoing abuse, they the mothers have already been ostracized and demonized in the court because that's why the father got custody. So if the mothers keep reporting what the children are telling them, they tend to get cut off. I mean, the re- response is not to protect the child, in my experience. The response is to end the visitation so the child has no one to keep reporting to. And we're not going to have to keep, we, the court, will not have to keep dealing with these claims, which we've already decided are false. Mm. So that's the dynamic. And doing the longitudinal research, you know, while the child's still a child, if they're in the custody of an abuser, you really can't do it. You can't get access. They have control legally, the abuser. What you can start doing, and I'm hoping there will be, you know, serious research done, is with adult survivor, you know, kids who were put in custody or care of an abusive parent and who are now adult and free to speak. That's the research that needs to be done. Are you aware of anybody doing that research currently? I'm not. Um, The best research I know that's kind of moving in that direction was the research by Joy Silberg and Stephanie Dallum looking at what they call turned around cases. So those are cases where a child uh, abuse wasn't believed and a child was given either custody or unsupervised access to an abusive parent. And then later that was corrected and the child was protected. And that's based on, they, they've collected cases where a court turned turned the result around and they've analyzed the factors that led to the wrong decisions and that led to the corrections. Um, and that's very confirmatory of what we're finding in our data as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there is, so that's qualitative analysis, but they use, they have numbers because they have a body of cases that they're counting up. They find that, you know, faulty experts contribute to the bad decisions, parental alienation 
theory contributes to the bad decisions and qualified true experts contribute to the corrections and also subsequent abuse and subsequent physical evidence. But, um, and they, they, they say much more than that. Um, it's a study well worth reading and it is available online. Okay, great. Maybe uh, we could share that with our listeners. Yeah, I hope you should have Joy on, definitely. Okay. So in response to one of the um, questions I had posed earlier, framing the backdrop for the culture of disbelief. Um, on your website, the DV Leap website, you list six variables that contribute to um, why this problem exists. And one of them is that family courts prioritize co-parenting and paternal access. Um, that seems to me that that's by definition gender bias if you're prioritizing paternal access rather than child safety. Well, how do you respond to that? <laughs> that's a great question. Um, they definitely prioritize co-parenting, and they will all tell you that because they all think that's best for children, and children shouldn't lose one parent just because the parents separate. However, and and this is anecdotal. We, you know, although our new research is starting to put data behind the anecdotes. Um, anecdotally, those of us who work in this field find a, a strong leaning to, toward protecting paternal access. I don't know if the courts would would say that that's true, that they see themselves that way. Some might. They think, they would say that if they are doing that, it's because they see women as, as wrongfully withholding children from the fathers and out of vengeance or out of pathology, and that's wrong, and they're evening the scales. Um, they would also say that they believe, I think incorrectly, that mothers have much more custody than fathers and the fathers who are fighting for custody are the good fathers and, you know, we need to make sure to reward them and give them access. The data and other research than mine as well as my own shows that that's not true, that actually women are, when women, um, women have more custody after divorce or separation only because they settle, most, most cases are settled and women will fight often to the nth degree to keep custody of the children if they've been the primary caretaker. Um, uh, but the cases that get litigated, even before my study, were showing that women, that fathers get sole custody more often than women, and that joint custody is kind of the law of the land, which fits your question about shared parenting, that courts, they bend over backwards to do shared custody, even with abusers. And in fact, I have a case on appeal right now, a DV Leap case, in which the court went on and on at great length about the emotional abuse toward the child and the alienation that the father was doing against the mother with the three-year-old. Um, outrageous, extreme, racist, hostile, derogatory stuff that he was sharing with the three-year-old about the mother. And um, uh, even so, the court gave him nominally joint custody, but it was, it was more of a visitation schedule, so the father didn't get 50-50. And the court detailed all this hideous behavior, I think, to justify not giving 50-50, whereas, in fact, the statute would have required it to go further and to protect the child from the emotional abuse that was happening with the father. But the court, I think, missed that part of the statute. And we just argued, our pro bono partner just argued this case on appeal in the D.C. Court of Appeals. And it was clear to me that the judges on the appellate court didn't understand that this was emotionally really harmful because they thought that the father had already gotten the short end of the stick because he didn't get 50-50. So, so the, um, the emphasis on 50-50 is just universal. It doesn't really matter what the statutes say. So with that particular case, there's no decision yet. You just, right. Decision okay. is pending. We just That'd had an oral argument, but it could not have been clearer from the oral argument how this decision is going to come out. And it's not going to be in our favor. It's going to be that this court already, you know, limited this father's access. What more could you want? That's the decision that I expect to see. It seems to me that there's a real gap here in terms of all of these decision makers having a common definition of what child abuse is even. And it's it's very parallel to elevating the violence um, against women as equal to domestic violence and not including psychological or emotional or financial abuse as part of that definition. And similarly for children, because there was emotional abuse, they don't have access to ACEs research or, you know, how just I, you know, trauma in general impacts children. 
Yes, that's one thing they didn't take seriously that this child was in her arms when she was being abused or witnessing it. She didn't take any of that seriously. And the judge wouldn't even hear an expert witness that the mother offered to explain how that must have impacted the child. That's one thing. But I want to simplify it even more for you. You're, you're making it a little bit complicated in a way that's valid. Like courts should understand all these things. Yes. But what was more striking to me here is that the particular form of emotional abuse by the father here, which is indeed part and parcel of domestic violence, uh, is it was alienation. It was parental alienation, which courts take very seriously when the mom does it or when they think the mom does it. And we were trying to say to them, you courts, including the D.C. Court of Appeals, take alienation very seriously. You've ruled that it's a basis for not letting the mother keep sole custody, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So here we are. You've got a batterer. The judge found that he battered, that he lied about it. The judge found that he's doing all this alienation that's egregious beyond anything that the mothers in our cases have been accused of. Aren't you going to do something about that? Nah, he already didn't get 50-50. <laughs> so, so what that shows me is, and I intend to write about, is the implicit bias underlying parental alienation theory and how it's used in court. It's only really powerful, it seems, when it's used against a mother who's claiming abuse. But if it's the abuser who's doing it, and that's frankly what the social science research does show, is that this concept of turning turning the kid against the other parent is, is a huge weapon used by violent abusers um, and always has been. Courts have never paid attention to it before and even now they're not, even though parental alienation has all this, all this attention and concern, not when it's done by a male. So there's a clear double standard. I, it seems to me, I, you know, that there's a clear double standard anecdotally. I mean, that's one case, right, mm -hmm. where I'm seeing it very clearly. But our data is more complicated. It does show that women win with alienation sometimes. When their alienation claim is credited, they do better than when they don't raise alienation. But they don't do anywhere near as much better as fathers do when their alienation claim is credited. For instance, our... And that makes sense because the alienation theory is so much, is so gendered. So what we found, for instance, I'm going to find this data in a second. When a father claims a mother is abusive and she claims that he's an alienator, which is the gender reversal of uh -huh. the norm, uh -huh. she, she benefits. Her alienation claim is credited more often if he calls her an abuser which is interesting and which fits the dynamic we see when the, in the gender normal cases. Mm. But when you have a gender normal case where mom accuses dad of abuse and dad says she's an alienator, he benefits eight times more. So wow, way more than difference. a mother does. Yeah. Like off the charts. Uh, his alienation claim is going to be credited almost for sure if she accuses him of abuse. Whereas for moms, it helps them a little bit if he accuses her of abuse, but not as much. So it's complicated findings that we're getting, but, um, but they do show gender in a complex way. And the other way they show gender, uh, which is maybe easier to track and follow, is that we show that when women accuse men of abuse and men accuse women, conversely, of alienation, they are far more likely to have their alienation credited. And if they have their alienation credited, they are far more likely to win. And if that all happens, they are far more likely to take custody away. So... The paradigm case where mom reports abuse and dad says alienation is a setup for a gender bias, but it's, an, it's a kind of a hidden gender bias. It's the dynamic of the accusation of abuse fueling the alienation, fueling the win and the custody switch. What do you hope to do with your research? Is there any plan because the DOJ actually funded it for them to use it and make some changes in policy and recommendations and practice? Well, I don't think DOJ really addresses these kinds of policies because these practices are all state law, custody law, mm -hmm. state criminal law, state protection order law. Um, but we're going to get it out as widely as we can in publications and trainings and presentations. Uh, we have like five or six presentations lined up through November now um, at a wide variety of associations, including a criminal justice association meeting, including a human relations academic conference, including a wide variety. We're going to also obviously be including it in judicial trainings and otherwise and getting it out in papers. And then the question is going to be, how do we, how do we find a way to uh, educate evaluators and guardians ad litem and judges, those neutral professionals who really carry the case, um, to, to get them to believe that actually what they think when they've been preferring fathers and they think they've been egalitarian in doing that, to understand that actually they've been biased against mothers in doing that because the realities out there are the opposite of what they think statistically. 
So in all of those scenarios that you just suggested, participation would be voluntary, I'm assuming? Or um, is there some possibility that judges, for example, would be required to take this training? That depends on the state and the state court. So some state courts have mandatory trainings for domestic violence. And um, in some of those, they might hear from people like me. But it's totally up to the state and the state court. And I have done some of the mandatory trainings and some of the discretionary trainings. And I'll tell you, that the truth is that in the mandatory trainings, the judges tend to be very resistant to this kind of information. In the discretionary trainings, the judges who attend are ones who actually think it matters to know more about domestic violence and to understand more about the latest research. The folks that are mandated and wouldn't choose to go are the folks that don't want to know that for a reason. They, they don't want to hear about it. They don't think it's relevant. They don't think it's accurate. They don't, they're somewhat defended against knowing more about abuse. It's my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, but across law enforcement agencies in the country, there's implicit bias training that's mandatory now. I don't, is, I, is that not I don't true? know. Okay. It sounds to me like that would be a matter of state, I see. state law okay. or state policy also. So what, what can we do as citizens to um, make sure that this information gets in front of the people that it needs to, to make this happen? Well, one, one thing I would urge everyone listening to do and to explore is that we have a resolution in Congress. Even though Congress does not control state courts, Congress can issue non-binding resolutions that are basically educational for state courts and state legislators that can say, we federally see a problem and we would like you states to be addressing it. And we have a resolution called H. House Concurrent Resolution 72 that is currently pending in the House of Representatives um, and that we're very excited about moving forward for sure this year that addresses some of the problems I've talked about. It's, it, again, it's non-binding, but it's saying we, the Congress, think there's a problem here. We think there's a problem with family courts not protecting children. We think there's a problem with the use of experts who aren't really expert in abuse but relying on them anyway. We think there's a problem with junk science theories. Uh, we, you know, we recommend that courts use proper evidentiary standards for scientific theories, that they only use experts who have real expertise, and that they put child safety first before they consider other things like alienation and other best interest concerns, because we think child safety is the fundamental, most overarching best interest concern. And so there's, the resolution says more than that, and anyone can find it by um, going to, I think it's congress.gov, hconres72, um, and they can read the whole thing and see all the co-sponsors that we have. Uh, but I think if that is passed, and so I'm asking the listeners, your listeners, to go to their their representative in their district or any other representatives in their state and meet with them in their in their home offices if you can or their staff. Tell them that you want their representatives to sign on to this resolution and tell them why it's important. If you have your own story of a bad experience in family court, tell them your story because you're their constituent and they have to care about that. And that will give credence to the need for this resolution. If this resolution then gets adopted, which we are pretty optimistic it will, then the local advocates need to take it to their local legislatures and to their courts. It needs to be used to change laws and make them tighter for protection and also to educate judges in trainings and in briefs and advocacy. So isn't it the case that even after a law is implemented, that courts can choose not to follow it. And that, that brings me to a case that you, D.V. Leap, worked on, SL versus the JR case. Can you just talk about the background for that case and what the decision was? A little bit, yeah. So that's a case from New York, and we were asked to help out by a lawyer who knew us and who had worked with us before who was representing the mother in that case. The backdrop was, was an unusual one where the father hadn't been overtly physically abusive, but, um, and I'm not sure, and I, I'm not going to go into whether he had been otherwise abusive. The mother had committed some acts that were deemed abusive, including burning his clothes on the front lawn when she found out that he had lied to her and was having an, another affair. Um, uh, but what was important about that case was that there was a this was the case where the court decided the case without holding a hearing and taking evidence. The court decided the case based on a couple of affidavits from the parents and, it, and a report from some kind of evaluator. And it basically decided 
something that was not consistent with the mother's request for custody. And we took that case up. And the reason we did, even though it wasn't really clearly a domestic violence case, was that the lack of due process to the mother who lost the case um, was extreme. I mean, we have a court system that's based on the idea that if you're in court and you're having a trial and you're having a judge decide your case, you get to put on evidence. There's rules, there's procedures, there's fairness to you, which is the essence of due process. And our position was that couldn't be less fair to not even hold a hearing and have evidence and have a chance to cross-examine the, the person who, who wrote the report. So um, we supported with an amicus brief, a friend of the court brief, the lawyer representing the mother, and that went up to the state high court, which I think is the court of, I think they call it the Court of Appeals mm -hmm. in New York. Mm -hmm. And um, actually the guardian ad litem in that case sort of supported our position and said, yeah, there should be due process in the average case. Um, and the Court of Appeals ruled that 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 case had been decided wrongly. They had had a theory, many of the courts in, in the district, different districts in New York had had a rule that basically, if you have adequate information, adequate relevant information was the phrase, I think, in this district, you didn't need to hold a trial. And other districts had similar rules. And the state Supreme Court, the High Court of, of New York said, nah, you really got to hold a trial unless it's really clear that all that everything points in one direction. Um, and so that was a huge decision. because, And it shook up many, many lower courts. And we saw as a result of that decision, we did a little research a year or two later and found that a lot of courts were getting reversed because they were applying their old rules that said you don't have to have trials. And now under the SL case, they do have to have trials. So that was a big victory for us because it forced more due process on the lower courts. But just to be clear, that case doesn't help individuals who have already not received due process and they've passed their appeals deadline. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. That that case can only help people who are yet to litigate their case or have litigated their case but still have time to appeal. Um, and they need a word of warning to anyone in that position. You need to raise it with the trial court first. So if you don't, if record. you don't, right, if you don't put it on the record and say to the trial judge, I object to the lack of a trial here, you may have problems getting the appeal court to consider it because the appeal court, there's a general rule that's pretty universal across the country in, in courts of appeal that if you don't raise any of your objections to the trial judge, we're not going to consider it on appeal. They want the trial judge to have first crack at any of the issues you're going to raise on appeal. And of course, the group that definitely won't be able to hold judges accountable who don't follow that law are the ones who can't afford to file an appeal. <laughs> that is true. I will say this, though. There are some resources for people who can't afford to pay for an appeal. One of them is my own nonprofit, DV Leap. That's what we do. We do appeals and we do them for free. And we do them with, on, we're only able to do them with incredible generosity of big law firms who um, offer their expertise as appellate lawyers for free, pro bono. So we do them. The problem is, is that we can't do every case because A, we're tiny and under-resourced, and B, not every case has made the record sufficiently that there can be a successful appeal. So what happens if you have one of those, you have time and you filed your notice to preserve your right to appeal, feel free to send us your case through our website and uh, we will ask you for certain information like the written decision of the judge, um, maybe uh, if there was a brief or a motion on your side and on the other side that addressed the evidence or the key issues for appeal, we will want to look at those and then we'll see whether we think there's a viable appeal. If there is, we will try to place it with free lawyers and we will partner on, on that appeal. So is that DV Leap's model that most of the work is done through pro bono attorneys? Yes, that is our model. And that's the only reason we're able to do what we do because doing these cases in-house is incredibly labor intensive. So the the, the law firms pick up 90% of the labor and we, be, we bring our expertise to bear and help them frame and uh, make the arguments in the way that we know will be effective. Um, and we prep them for oral argument and so forth, but they do the lion's share of the work. How challenging is it for you to find a continuous source of pro bono attorneys and law firms? Actually, Washington, D.C. is the best 
city for pro bono work. And I think that's because we have a huge confluence of very large law firms, which we call big law in the field, um, in, in the legal education field, it's called big law. So the really big firms with a lot of resources and a lot of offices around the country. Um, and they, in, in D.C. in particular, I know it's true in other states as well, but especially in D.C., there's a huge commitment to pro bono work in these firms. They do all kinds and not just the kind that we do. Um, they do, you know, prison work and they do death penalty work and they do immigration, all kinds of things. Um, but we are cultivating, and we have for years cultivated a, a large cadre of firms and pro bono lawyers within the firms who really care about our work and are developing some expertise in our work. And so actually, we don't have too much trouble finding pro bono partners. The trouble we have is that we need more funds to resource so that we can hire more in-house lawyers to partner on these cases, because we, are, we have only two part-time lawyers, myself and my managing attorney, Sasha Drobnik, and we are very, very busy with what we have. And of course, I'm doing the research as well and the teaching as well. Um, and we just need more in-house uh, lawyers to be able to partner with the pro bono lawyers because we need the partnership to make sure the ca cases are argued and framed in the right ways. And I guess you need more financial resources exactly. and commitment as well. It, well, that's what we need in order okay. to get some in-house <laughs> lawyers. Absolutely. So listeners, if you hear that, please uh, go to DV Leaf's website. If you know any deep pockets, <laughs> um, send them to us. Okay. Well, I'd like to turn your attention now, Professor Meyer, to an article that you wrote for Huffington Post entitled, Lies, Damn Lies and Statistics. And in it, essentially, you debunked a Washington Post op-ed by a couple, Bradford Wilcox, director of the National Marriage Project um, and affiliated with the University of Virginia, and Robin Fretwell Wilson, a law professor at the University of Illinois, who basically argued that marriage was a deterrent, but also a prophylactic against domestic abuse. How do you respond to that? So let me say first what I realized I didn't put in the written blog, which is that this phrase, lies, damn lies, and statistics, is from Mark Twain. <laughs> and he was one of the first to say statistics are bunk, don't trust them, basically. And of course, I'm not saying they're always bunk, but they are often used in deceptive ways. And that's why I use that title. Um, my critique of Wilcox and Wilson's, what I call infamous op-ed, which was and it was titled, One Way to End Violence Against Women, Married Dads, unquote. It was so outrageous to those of us in the field that I felt that I had to take it on. So I looked at the research they were citing that they claimed shows that children in homes with married parents are safer. And I, and I deconstructed their claims, which were simply not accurate. What, for instance, they, they cited the National Incident Study of Child Abuse and Neglect, which is federally, governmentally collected data from the states. And um, what that study actually said was that biological parents were the most closely related perpetrators for most children who were physically abused, 71%. Emotionally abused, 73%. Physically neglected, 91%. Emotionally neglected, 90%. Educationally neglected, 94%. In contrast, so anyway, they were saying that uh, children were safest with biological parents, and yet you see that the vast majority of abusers are biological parents. And then you see when it comes to sexual abuse, it tended to be other people, just specifically sexual abuse. The rest of the study also said that the large majority of children, 77.5%, were maltreated by their in-home biological parents. Um, and that directly just completely refutes what they were saying. And then they say in-home step-parents and other non-biological parents make up the next category, but that's 3.2% and 6.7% compared to 77%. So it's a real distortion of this data to say that children are safest if their parents are married. That's just, it's just not true. Well, that actually brings me to a new policy I'd like to share with you that was implemented earlier this year in New York City by the Administration for Children's Services. It's a preventive policy by our child welfare agency. And let me just read what the purpose says and the criteria for identifying families who fall under this policy. So it says, quote, ACS has expanded the investigative consultant program to support preventive service providers where criminal history and domestic violence concerns are identified on cases with no active child protection investigation using the following criteria. And there are three. So the first one is when a new member or members are added to the household composition and or has caretaker responsibility and or 
when provider agencies or ACS identify signs or risk factors of criminal history, domestic violence, and or there are children under seven of age in the household. So it appears to me from this protocol that I think it may be um, an error in the way it was written, but any one of these three criteria can be used to start an active case um, through preventive services rather than the combination of all three concurrently present. Um, but we're just gonna we're gonna assume that all three have to be concurrently present because the other is a little bit extreme. Um, and so under I, this new initiative, can I ask one question yes. first? How are they starting a case or how are they even finding out that these criteria exist? So that, that brings me to the process. Okay. Thank you for asking. So under the new initiative, the Division of Preventive Services, which is part of the Office of Operations and Systems of ACS. Which is the Child Welfare Agency. Yes. Their um, staff will work closely with investigative consultants, which are external people that they hire, to provide consultations to preventive cases. So these external consultants, the people who are brought on board, have the ability to look at uh, databases and then reach out to um, ACS by completing a preventive investigative consultation request form, uh, which will then be reviewed by the Office of Operations and Systems of the Division of Preventive Services. And they're going to be gathering information to decide whether or not a case should be opened. But where are they gathering the information from? Are, are there meetings through, with the household preventive services families? So, so they're the, going to find families with these criteria and then they're going to go talk to them? Yes, that's my understanding. So preventive services in the child welfare agency within ACS can arise through a variety of um, different ways and you know, it could be through the courts. It could be through ho- homeless preventions. Yeah, or, or well, it doesn't necessarily. It's not through a complaint because these are oh, not active cases. Right. So they're at risk in some way. But they could be at risk because there was a complaint which was unfounded, which happens all the time. Why don't they look at those cases first? That would be a really good <laughs> triage. Well, that was actually my question to you. It seems to me, as you know, someone who's a New York City resident, that resources would be better spent dedicated to helping existing survivors who do have active cases and providing them with the resources to leave their unsafe situations and be able to remain safe. Yeah. I'm just curious, what are some of the risks that you see from this kind of policy? Um, Obviously, there's a large risk of uh, excessive government oversight of private families and homes. If the agency is going to be initiating outreach to families based on these criteria um, without anyone complaining about abuse. That's one thing. The other thing is that I'm sorry to say that most child welfare agencies do not have a great track record of helping families even when they do intervene. So if I thought that ACS could kind of fix everything and make it good for kids by doing this outreach without any on their own, I might be more interested in seeing how it goes. But my experience with these agencies is that they don't actually make it better for kids. They either remove kids and they wind up in foster care, which is a trauma in itself, being taken away from their attachment parent, assuming they have one, and most of them do. Um, Or they actually end up coming in often, I find them unfounding real abuse and helping abuser fathers get, get custody of children. So I'm, you know, until the agency gets better at identifying true abuse and protecting kids from true abuse, I don't really want to see it extending its reach to families that aren't making complaints or for whom and no one is making a complaint. That's one thing. The other thing is if you're really trying to identify families where prevention could be done, even though there has been no, there is no open case, go back through your unfounded cases and your unsubstantiated cases and do outreach to those families and see what's happening. Because you will find that the vast majority of those were wrongly unfounded. I mean, I'm not talking about the neglect cases. I'm talking about the physical and sexual abuse cases are often, often wrongly unfounded, we find. Um, Particularly if there's any kind of custody battle going on, the agency just steps out and, and waves a white flag and the court takes that to mean that there's been no abuse. Whereas in fact, 
there has been in the agency didn't do a thorough investigation or caved under pressure from the abuser. So, you know, if they're serious about prevention, go back through that category of cases, which were once in the system to some degree, and check in on those families. That would be my recommendation. Thank you. I, I think this sound great. I, I mean, I the reason I brought this to your attention is because of your article in the Huffington Post and, and just, you know, it, it made me think as someone who's interested in data as a source of knowledge and empowerment that, you know, maybe there wasn't a contextualization of the whole additional partner criteria and they were misusing that myth that you cited in your article to further you know, harm families. I think that that's possible. Let me complexify it a little bit because what I'm remembering as I review the data again is that biological parents most often committed physical abuse of children and emotional abuse and neglect. But when it comes to sexual abuse, um, 40% of sexually abused children were people other than parents. Now, of course, that says 60% of sexually abused parents were children of parents, and they don't seem to mention that. But it does say that fewer children were sexually abused by non-biological parents or parents' partners. So they are saying it's kind of split between partners and biological parents and none of the above. Does that? It doesn't mean that they are necessarily more at risk with partners, but there is some other research that does support the idea that non-biological parent fathers are more likely to abuse, sexually abuse their kids. The data is very mixed because the biological parents do it too. So, but that you need to take special note when it comes to sexual abuse of the non-bio parent role fathers. But when, with regard to all the other kinds of abuse, we're looking at bio fathers. And so the agency has no business demoting biological fathers and looking only or primarily at non-bio fathers. Yeah, I mean, my my initial reaction when I saw that was, where's the context around the economic, socioeconomic reasons for why someone might choose to have a partner, even if mm-hmm. um, they're in a preventive situation? Mm-hmm. You know, there's um, obviously lack of equal pay in this country and lots of economic impediments that keep women from being able to be, right. you know, sustainable right. and independent. And so those choices might actually inform their decision to have a partner or not, right. which actually are exacerbated by not having been dealt with in the original case that brought them to be a preventive right. case to begin with. Right. And so there is definitely a, a sort of a large-scale concern with these agencies over-focusing on poor families and poor mothers who may be the ones who need a partner just to survive financially. Right. Um, And under-focusing on um, better-off families who are doing often a comparable level, at least, of sexual abuse because that tends to be the more hidden, more secretive, more you-can-get-away-with-it kind of abuse in the upper, middle and upper class families. So I'd like to turn to some recent events in the news. This past week, Bill Cosby was indicted by a jury on three counts of sexual assault, and many in the press have commented on the decision and the changes from the first trial in June of 2017 to the second trial this April. One difference was that there were more witnesses, and another was that the judge allowed the huge settlement from Cosby to Andrea Constand to be admitted into evidence, to be disclosed to the jury, and then finally, the fact that the trial unfolded in the Me Too movement. We can't know for sure how much each of these factors played a role in the decision, but I'm wondering how have you seen the Never Again and Me Too movements impact the cases that you are coming across? Have you seen a shift in any way in the decisions that are being written or argued in the appeals process? No, not in the domestic violence or child abuse field. I'm not seeing it at all. But I will say that my field is very, very clear about the links between the Me Too movement and what it's about and the work we're doing on abuse in the family. And obviously the issue with women's credibility is one and the same and children's credibility. In fact, I am very fond of a new hashtag, children too. Okay. Let me say one other factor that I think is very significant in the second trial. And it was someone brilliant who told me this, and unfortunately I'm not remembering right now who it was. Apparently in the second trial, in the first trial, they had someone testify about rape myths and rape culture at the end. In the second trial, they had that person testify first. So they reframed for the jury up front 
how not to think about these accusations, what pitfalls not to fall into when you're judging credibility. And that may have made a big difference too, because the problem with juries judging the credibility of rape claimants, same with DV or or judges, frankly, um, DV or child abuse, same thing, is that the culture of denial affects all of us. We live in a world where there's skeptic, there's sort of ingrained skepticism towards women and children who claim these kinds of abuses. And until that's called out and named, we don't even know we're being influenced by those, those implicit biases. But having them called out and named in the beginning probably helped the jury to set aside some of that implicit bias and look more objectively at the evidence. And that is totally applicable to the work we do on abuse in the family. And, um, you know, I'm hoping that the same lessons and the same messages and the same social shifts are soon going to carry over to the family setting. Thank you for sharing that, Professor Meyer, because I have not read that at all in okay. any of the coverage. Well, I feel bad that I can't remember who told me very recently, but I will eventually, probably tonight at three in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're coming to the end of our interview. And in the spirit of Inside the Actor's Studio, James Lipton's questionnaire, I've created an engender questionnaire for all our guests. There are three questions. So the first one is, what's at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? When you ask it that way, I'm going to say something that may sound ludicrous, but I think everything. I think war. I think violence on our streets. I think all kinds of trauma and torture that goes on in our world is a product of children being traumatized and abused in ways that they then act out when they're adult. I really wonder how many of the terrorists who torture and kidnap and kill were either completely neglected and raised themselves, or were very badly tormented and tortured themselves. And many people, not all of them, but many people who experience this in childhood don't heal the trauma, don't have the resources and the support communally to heal their, what they experience as children, go, go on to act it out. And, and we see that with so many abusers. There was a killer in Maryland, um, Mark Castillo, who um, threatened to kill the three children when the wife was talking about separation. The wife was a pediatrician. You would, thought, you would have thought she'd have some credibility in court, but she didn't. She relayed that threat. The evaluators interviewed him, thought he seemed perfectly fine, didn't listen to her. And he then drowned their three little girls in the bathtub when he had unsupervised visitation. Only after all of that, and he confessed, and he tried to kill himself, but he failed, so he was alive. He was alive to start telling his ex-wife why he did it. He had been egregiously, terribly abused as a child. And nobody had paid attention to that. He'd never healed it. And he inflicted it on his children. And that's not a one-off. I don't think that explains every case of abuse in the family, but I think it explains many, especially the sexual abuse and inflictions of abuse on children. And until we start dealing with it, we're going to keep propagating it. And some of those kids are going to go out and shoot up churches and public venues and concerts, as we're seeing with the mass shootings. So the amount of violence we have in our culture and how much of that is a product of trauma that the shooters have experienced, uh, we need to start looking at that. But I think so many social and cultural ills are a product of abuse in the family. You know, the ACEs research is only starting to uncover. What gives you hope? What gives me hope is uh, the growing movement to publicize the realities of what's going wrong in family court and of the denial of true abuse. The Me Too movement gives me hope. The new research that's coming out, including my own, is giving me hope because it's national and I think it's going to have an impact. The federal resolution, the fact that we're getting federal po policymakers to take this seriously and pay attention to it, and I know how much of a difference that can make. All of these things put together, and the growing, slowly, but, but growing, attention from the media is giving me hope. And I think we're going to reach a critical mass like the Me Too movement did. And at some point, we're going to turn the corner or go over the watershed, and suddenly everyone's going to see the truth that everyone's been denying before. So I feel like I am hoping that in my lifetime, I'm going to see that shift. And that's basically my mission is to help, to help contribute to turning the ship of denial around. It's a big ship, and it goes very slowly, and it's hard to turn. But the goal is to turn that ship so that its trajectory is in a different direction. Okay, and our final question, what can our listeners do more of, less of, start or stop to be part of the solution? These are great questions. Um, 
more of. More. And you don't have to answer all four. Okay, thank you. I may <laughs> you forget pick, some of them. You can pick one. <laughs> more letters to the editor about your own story or a story of a friend, which might be safer. Um, more uh, calls and visits to your Congress people and your senators sharing this information, including the research. We now have enough data for you to hand in that the, the policymakers can see it's not just your story or your crazy hysteria, quote unquote, about your story. It's 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 global. It's certainly nationwide. Um, so bring the bring the stories and the data in these visits. Um, less of um, less not believing when you have a friend who's female who says she lost custody, less assumption that she did something wrong and deserved that more willingness to listen to what really happened and what she's experienced both in the court and in her relationship with her former spouse and what's happened to the children. Um, of course, the ability to listen to these stories takes great strength and muscle, and I mean psychic strength and muscle. It is agony to listen to these stories, and that's one of the reasons we have so much denial, because hearing about child victimization that could have been prevented and should have been is traumatizing for the listener. That's a form of vicarious trauma. So gear yourself up, get some support for yourself, and become a good listener for the people you know who are struggling with family court or struggling with abuse in the family. Be willing to testify if you've witnessed something that, you, that might help the case. Those are some of the things that I think uh, lay people can do. What else were your questions? Uh, start or stop. <laughs> I think you mentioned some of them. Yeah, I think so I probably did. start listening. I think I just start <laughs> listening more and 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 put stop bringing skepticism to the stories of abuse, whether it's abuse by a court or abuse by a, a spouse or a partner. Yeah, I think that's probably the most I can offer. Thank you so much, Professor Meyer. This has been very rewarding, informative conversation. You I really asked, enjoyed it. Terry, you've done your homework and you ask great questions. So I hope you get a lot of good guests and I will send them to you. Great, thank you. All right, take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by CanDoIt. The mission of CanDoIt is to connect human service providers with the resources they need to empower their clients to be safe, healthy, housed, educated, employed, advised, and secure. CanDoIt helps to bridge the service gap and can be found at kanduit.com. CanDoIt. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions. Until next time, I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Thank you. Thank you.